0: Hello, everyone. You're listening to Speaking of Art School, an oral history project created to perpetuate the legacy and culture of the San Francisco Art Institute. I'm your host, Thomas Houston. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. My name's Thomas Houston, and you're watching and listening to Speaking of Art School. I'm the uh, creator of this podcast series where we interview alumni and or faculty from sfai and today we're going to be speaking with artist and musician dave getz who's most well known for being the drummer for big brother in the holding company uh associated with janice joplin of course and uh he graduated from the Art Institute in 1964. I graduated from the Art Institute in 1984. Uh, I was a painting major, and uh, started this podcast about two years ago. And this is episode number nine. Awesome! So we're rolling. Yeah. How are you?
1: Good. I'm good.
0: Good to see you. Yeah,
1: yeah. Sorry nice about to the. to see you too. Um,
0: I already introduced you, but I'll introduce you again. Dave Getz uh graduate from san francisco art institute 1964. is that correct it
2: 64.
0: Is. okay and uh mostly well known for being the drummer for big brother in the holding company and um i think we'll start i'll just kind of turn it over to you and get a little background about where you were from and how you came to san francisco and you know Maybe a little bit about your your journey there and we'll just mm-hmm. keep going. And I've got um, photos that you sent me in a folder that we can talk about your artwork and uh, and music uh, as we go along.
2: So
1: okay. how I came to the Art Institute is um, that I came in 1960 to San Francisco to go to the Art Institute which I think was still called California School of Fine Art Uh at that moment. It was about to change. But what had happened was that I had had gone to Cooper Union Art School in New York from the time I was 17 to the time I was 20. And Cooper Union was a great art school. It um, It was very different than the Art Institute. It was very strict and regimented. It was nine to five every day. You had design classes and English classes. And then second year, in my first year, I actually started to study architecture was my intention. Uh-huh. But anyway, I didn't go there. I went into, I started to paint in the second year. And uh, anyway, Cooper Union only gave a diploma. I graduated after three years of Cooper Union, and I was going to go to Yale. I had gotten into Yale Art School, which at that time was um, Joseph Albers. And uh, it was the art department was actually run by a guy named Bernard Chait. And I got into Yale. And then when I graduated from Cooper Union, uh, I I won a scholarship to a summer school in Maine called Skowhegan, Skowhegan Art School, which is fairly well known on the East Coast. And Skowhegan, uh, Skowhegan was, um, the setup with Skowhegan was that each art school, each major art school in the country had a, a scholarship student to go to Skowhegan. And that was about half the student body. And the other half the student body were mostly rich people from New York City. Uh-huh. And um, and they would have guest artists every year. Uh, the, the, main, the main person that really founded the school was a regionalist painter named Henry Varnum Poor. And he was he was fairly old then. he was probably in his mid or late 70s. And then there was another uh, another guy named Willard Cummings, who was a portrait painter who had um, a company in New York called Portraits Unlimited, very fine portrait painter, but the guest artist that summer was Alex Katz. Uh And I got really, you know, kind of blown away by his paintings at that time. Anyway, um, at the school was a guy from from the San Francisco Art Institute who was the scholarship student from the San Francisco Orange Institute. His name was Jim Massey. He's still alive, and he calls himself Jack Massey now. Very good painter. Uh huh. And I got close to him, and he started telling me about San Francisco and how great the audience was, and painted me a whole picture that was actually not accurate. Uh huh. <laughs> But it, but I bought into it, and I think I had read some things like on the road and Dharma Bums maybe. Yeah. And I was fascinated with what was going on in San Francisco. I had heard about uh, I was aware of Deben Corn, uh-huh. uh huh, Elmer Bischoff, and David Park. Yeah. And what was that at that time referred to as California figurative school? It was a new thing, and it was kind of taking the art world by storm. It was kind of uh, an alternate a West Coast answer to the New York School of Abstract Expressionism, which I was very deeply immersed in. And Alex Katz was really actually very much a part of that, that New York school. But anyway, I got out of summer, I got I came home from that summer thing. And um uh, I just made this decision. It was very, very kind of radical in the at the time for my parents and my whole life to not go to Yale and to get in my car and drive to San Francisco. Uh-huh. I did that. I had yep. a, a 1949 Plymouth. <laughs> uh-huh, so. I got in it and I drove almost <laughs> straight nonstop to San Francisco. I think at some point in Salt Lake City, I picked up a hitchhiker who was a sailor, who was a um, an African American sailor, and he drove some. So we, I never really slept.
3: Wow, that's so great.
1: And I think I made it in something somewhere around 75 hours Yeah, from New York to San Francisco. And awesome. I got into San Francisco at night. And uh, one of the first places I drove to was the Art Institute. And I drove to North Beach also. I wanted to see North Beach, what North Beach was, which was like, you know, so was the Greenwich Village of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I was just really, I couldn't believe how small North Beach was that's basically just one street was this grant avenue and, and where where is this place and where's the beach and you know all of that but i drove up to the art institute and they were those um i don't know what those trees are in front they're still there
0: oh yeah right
1: but the trees someone had covered the trees with blankets this was september and i don't think it was that cold but maybe there was a frost or something and there were these blankets on the trees and one of the blankets had blown off so i took the blanket i took the blanket up walked the street Chestnut street i looked at the school it was locked up and i drove around and i drove into the back of the school It uh-huh. was a big backyard then there yep. was no new part it was just the old part of the school and i wrapped that blanket around me and i slept there the first night in San Francisco. I slept in the backyard. Oh
3: man. That's great. That's awesome.
1: The next day was the beginning of classes. So I went in and I registered for a bunch of classes. And I started going to classes. I went to uh my most memorable moment I remember was the first first maybe couple of days in there. Um oh and I then I I contacted this guy Jim Massey and I was staying on a couch. He lived uh, in the Fillmore. He lived on Fulton Street in the Fillmore. Mm-hmm. And I was able to stay on his couch. He had—he didn't tell me that he had a wife and two children. Uh. And his wife was not really pleased that I had sort of come there thinking I could sort of stay there. So, But I was staying there, and I was going to classes. And I was in this English class, maybe this second or third day. And the, this guy was uh, lecturing. He was talking about Shakespeare. There was something about Shakespeare. And a girl whose name was Lori Lawyer got up. She had a big dog. She had a big German Shepherd that was laying there because people were smoking. It was very, very different than Cooper Union right, right off the bat. I mean, it was uh-huh. just, the whole vibe was very loose and free. And anyway, Lori Lawyer got up and stood up in the class. And addressed the teacher who was wearing a suit. He was like a nicely dressed guy. And she said, You're so full of shit. You're the most full of shit person I've ever heard in my life. And then got up and walked out. And maybe three or four people got up and walked out with her. And I went, Whoa. Wow. This doesn't happen at Cooper Union at all. Yeah. Was impossible.
3: Oh, That's man. That. That's sometime, great.
1: Sometime in the first maybe second week, I was taking drawing classes. I Richard Diebenkorn was teaching drawing. Um Richard Miller was teaching some humanities class. I had a, a um I had a ceramics class with um I think it was Ernie Kim. Hmm. Does that sound right? Hmm.
3: Could, it was yeah.
1: Ernie Kim or Xiong Moi. I think it was Ernie Kim. Pretty sure it was Ernie Kim. But anyway. Uh, I was called down to the office at some point. And Jack Lashua was the administrator. And he said, Well, you know, you've given us, uh, I think I gave them what money I had, which is about $175 or something like that. And he said, Well, you know, we need the rest of the money for tuition. you know, a couple of hundred dollars, it was. It was pretty cheap. Yeah. I think all of the units I was taking was somewhere under maybe $400.
3: Yeah, right.
1: And, um, I said well i don't have any more money and they said well you, you know you can't go to classes anymore mm-hmm. anyway long story short i had taken the post office exam when i was in new york at Cooper union and i somehow got a job at the post office as a what was called a blue badge it was a like a part-time worker at the post office and i dropped out of the school i said i can't pay any tuition and i tried to get back some money because I was really broke. I didn't have any money. And the school gave me back some of the money. I don't remember how much, but it wasn't much. But, you know, it was maybe half of what I paid. And, And I had a little money to live on. And then I got this job and I started working at the post office. And I worked at the post office for 10 months. And then in January of 1961, I came back and I registered again. And I had the money. I was making enough money I was making 55 dollars a week at the post office and I was it was enough for me to have a motor scooter and an apartment I had an apartment on Steiner Street for forty dollars a month uh, and um, and I bought this motor scooter and uh, I started going to classes and that's I, great and, and then I got a job at that time the cafeteria was downstairs in the old building. Mm-hmm. it was um it was looking out at this backyard which was just wild kind of it wasn't wasn't um no one was tending it and a, a lot of people were doing sculpture outdoor sculpture in that yard there some metal sculpture was going on and uh i got this job in the cafeteria at that time the guy the man who owned trader vicks uh-huh bergeron was a was a donor to the school. He was one of the big benefactors, mm. uh, money helping the school at the time. And he would bring in food to the cafeteria. No one was cooking at mm. all. And they would just bring in food and they were looking for people to help serve it. And so I got a job working in the cafeteria. And that's kind of what I did pretty much for the next three years. I wow. worked in the cafeteria. Yeah. And I wound up running the cafeteria with another guy named Joe Odo huh. who was a painter and um yeah and then I stayed on and I got my BFA in 62 and then I applied for the master's program I didn't get in at first I was sort of uh put on a waiting list and then I was accepted I did get it uh-huh. and I t- I took I was there from from 62 through Probably a year and a half from mid sixty two to spring of sixty four. I was in the graduate program, and during Uh that time, the first part of the graduate program, Elmer Bischoff was the director of the graduate program. Yeah, and then was taken over by Frank Lobdell. Hmm. And you were. I may have that reversed. It may have been Frank Lobdell in the beginning, and then Elmer Uh took it over.
0: And you were a painting major or a printmaking?
1: Painting. I was Painting. painting. And during the time I was at the Art Institute, I had various studios south of Market. I had at one point, I had a storefront on Buchanan and McAllister that I lived in and painted in. At another point, I shared a studio with, um, on, on Minna Street, uh-huh. which is at that, it's all, it's all different now, but Minna yeah. Street, was south of Market, and we found this old shoe factory a bunch of guys and myself ron Dahl was a painter who was at california college of arts and crafts and there was a sculptor named jordan good and there was a composer steve reich hmm. was a composer who rented a room from us. yeah well known awesome. he became well known of course yeah and um at different points i i shared studios with different people i had um mostly that one on Street, i guess was was really i had for quite a long time. Um at awesome. some point in sixty two, I moved in next door to Wally Hedrick and Jay DeFail. Uh-huh. And I lived at twenty two thirty Fillmore with a woman named Kathy Cook, who was also a student at the Art Institute, a painter. And we became very close with Wally and Jay. Yeah. And also during that time in the right well, right from the beginning, I should say, um at some of the very first parties, and and even maybe before I was a student, probably, probably in the fall of 1960, while I was still just working at the post office and kind of hanging out at the school and, and going to parties at the school, at some point at one of those parties, this jazz band, this traditional jazz New Orleans kind of Dixieland band was playing. And they were all mostly faculty members that I recognized. Elmer Bischoff was the trumpet player, uh-huh. and Wally Hedrick was the banjo player. And um I think the drummer originally was Bob McChesney, but I can't remember. But at some point, I saw that you know that I was I should I should play drums. Yeah. In this band. That awesome. This, this guy is just not not really cutting it. And I sat in, and I and you know and then they just asked me to be part of the band to be the drummer in the band that's awesome because
0: you'd been you'd been a musician all along during this
1: time i had been a musician from the time i was 15 yeah i got into a band and i started playing the drums and taking some drum lessons but mostly i just started playing the drums and i just could do it Mm -hmm. from the time i was 15 so i was in bands and yeah i was in new york and i was right away i was I was 15 and a half years old. I was in the union. I was in the musicians' union and playing professionally. And every summer I would play in hotels in the Catskill Mountains, different like a Jewish resorts and things like that. Some really good ones and some really, you know, funky ones. Uh-huh. And I did that a lot. And I played uh, what at that time we used to call club dates. I wasn't playing rock and roll. I really didn't even like rock and roll. I was. Uh-huh. Kind of I started out when I was 11 and 12, liking rhythm and blues and listening to Alan Freed and all of that music. But by the time I was 14 or 15 and playing the drums, I was already into jazz. And I became sort of a jazz snob. And my friends who listened to rock and roll and all of that stuff, Elvis, all of that stuff kind of missed me. Yeah. I was already, when I was 15 or 16, I was already listening to Charlie Parker and you know Dizzy Gillespie and all of the bebop, Horace Silver, and Art Blakey and all of that awesome. New York bebop and that's yeah. what I wanted that's what I wanted to play yeah um and I but basically most of the sh- most of the jobs that I did were what were called club dates which were like weddings and fraternity parties and bar mitzvahs and things like that that yeah. were functions where yeah you would play dance music right and and um, I didn't want to be a musician professionally at all, ever.
0: I see. Because yeah, I was...
1: the 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 world of music that I was in at that time was not rock and roll, and it wasn't even jazz. Although a lot of the people I played with at these club dates were like terrific jazz musicians, but you couldn't get, like, make any money. So the guys would play, like, dance music, like, you know, Guy Lombardo, mm-hmm. Ratton, all this you know, mostly standards from the 1930s and 40s. That was mostly what's called now American Songbook. And a lot of these musicians were very good jazz players, but that's what they did to make money. Right. I saw that this life of of that kind of world of music in New York at that time was basically, I call it now, I, I describe it as you were like part of the servant class. And you were treated like when you played at parties, particularly like uh, weddings and parties like that, or society parties uptown Manhattan. You'd go through the service entrance and you would eat with the the maids and the and the, the help. Mm-hmm. You weren't you weren't any kind of pedestal like rock and roll later right. on happened. um So I didn't want that lifestyle. I aspired. I was in Cooper Union at the some point from the time I was 17 to the time I was 20, and the whole New York School of Art was happening. And those guys were all like just held in such high esteem, de Kooning and Franz Kline, mm-hmm. you know, all of those people, right? Yeah, right. And so I aspired to that. And some of the teachers, a few of the teachers at Cooper Union at that time were part of that thing. And at, one, and at one point, I remember even when I was like maybe 18 or 19, I got a gig playing at the artist club for a party at the artist club, which was like on, I think it was on 13th Street, somewhere between uh, 3rd and 4th Avenues. And, um, you know, I saw all of those guys. Awesome. I saw all of those guys getting drunk. All yeah. those New York legends, basically. Right. And I really <laughs> aspired to that. And, uh-huh. Uh, And so that's why that was part of the appeal of being an artist. I wanted to be on, I wanted to, you know, be on a social level and an intellectual level that was treated with, you know, honor and respect.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I thought of art and it was also another real factor in my determining going to art school was that some of the guys I was playing with, some of the young guys who really wanted to go into jazz, were practicing, would practice like six, seven hours a day. Were really serious. Mm-hmm. And they were getting into places like Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music. And I I never really was that kind of a player. I was more like a natural. I yeah. played gigs and I could just do it. And I had a good feel for drumming that right from the, uh, the get-go, from when I picked up drumsticks, People started hiring me. They wanted because I had just uh, could lay down a, a very good, solid beat. Right. But I didn't ever practice a lot. I didn't really learn to become a good sight reader. I didn't develop my chops, my technical chops. So I thought my future as a jazz musician is too. It's too uh, tentative. It it doesn't look good. Whereas like drawing and painting, I would I would get into that. I could draw. Like seven or eight hours a day, I could go right. and just get into things like that, and just really draw. And I love to draw, and I love to paint, and it's just something that I wanted to do all of the time. So that was, you know, really part of the decision too. Yeah. But um, you know, but all of the time I was doing this, I had parents that said, "How are you going to make a living?" My parents were working class people and they and my father really worked hard he worked 14 hours a day yeah he had like a grocery delicatessen kind of thing and and, uh, so anyway you know i was just inundated with that all of the time how are you going to make a living how Uh How is a pain how are you going to make money as a painter you know and they they actually loved that I played um music because I actually they never had to give me any money I, I would go on a weekend and and play. Sometimes I'd make fifty dollars, which in 1956, 57 yeah. was a lot of money for right. me, for a kid. Yeah. You know. So I sometimes in a weekend I'd make a hundred bucks, That's and my parents were very impressed. My dad was probably making a hundred dollars a week. Or something. Oh man. Yeah. So, so, so. Yeah. Music was okay. They liked that I did music, but at the same time they didn't want me to be a musician because in their mind, musician was like a klezma. Mm. Something like uh, one step away from being a gypsy, yeah, right, know, or some kind of like a some kind of person like that. And yeah. not again, it was like the servant class. They looked at that as like gypsies as like it's not a solid way to make a living. Mm-hmm. They would have liked me to be an architect. Yeah, if I had stayed with architecture, they would have been very happy. Yeah, or if I you know went to study medicine or law or something like that, those were the kind of things. So I really wanted to get away from that yeah part my thing of getting in my car and driving 3,000 miles <laughs> I'm not going to Yale uh uh-huh. also had something to do with that too so
3: right yeah yeah
1: so there I was at the art Institute and I was part of this band now I was the drummer in this band that played at all the parties and because I was in the band I got very close to the some of the older guys uh-huh. like Elmer and Wally and people like that yeah
0: that's awesome that's great yeah, uh, Did your experiences with art, how did that uh, influence you uh, coming from uh, New York to San Francisco? Did did that well, seem book. like you were on the right track? Did you feel like you'd, you had no. uh, gone I, to heaven or did it seem
1: no, like I, something I else? I, I was very New York and I was doing like little Alex Katz paintings in a way when I first arrived. I don't know if you have any. um, There was a self portrait I did when I was 20. It's just, it's very Alex Katzish. And I started doing stuff like that. And, and, you know, no one at the Art Institute really was interested in that. Right. And, um, you know, I tried different things. Um, Eventually, I started to really pick up on what was happening in the school the sort of the style yeah the 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 vibe of the mm-hmm. things and um you can Oof. see that this this was this painting here the uh, self-portrait uh let's see I think the first painting I did when I got to San Francisco and I was what? and then this this was a painting this reclining nude painting was a painting I did at Skowhegan oh there we go with Alex then yeah. when I started to draw and people when, with people like Debencorn and people like that I started to get influenced by that style right and you can see kind of that coming into the work yeah interesting and, and I was just you know I was a student I was very much a student and wanted to uh you know please the teachers I would say right I it was it was a long time in my art career personally where I said where I really found Something that I did just because I wanted to do it.
3: Yeah,
1: just right. To really pleased with myself. But while I was at the Art Institute, I very much was part of that milieu, and really wanted to um do something that was relevant in that context. Uh huh. And the people that, that most impressed me, I'd say, were Frank Lobdell. Frank Lobdell, his paintings really moved me. Right. I really saw something in his paintings that really was meaningful to me that there was a kind of abstraction but had some kind of like personal imagery to it uh-huh. and that was a big word that was a big a big phrase that you heard a lot yeah Um, from people at that time was pe- personal imagery was a big word at the art institute and a yeah. lot of people were, were searching for their sort of quote-unquote personal imagery so within a sort of like abstract expressionist framework um the you know the granddaddy of all of it was Clifford still
3: yeah
0: for sure let's see here
1: they, they look he was looked up to almost like as a god figure right so these some of these paintings here this is um let's see I'm looking, this is this is definitely um these paintings down here that I'm talking, these were at the Art Institute these were things that came out of the art Institute experience and this was at this nude here was at the art institute okay everything else that's up here is is my own work later on really Uh, this this was a painting this painting called sharks was a painting that i did right probably at my the time of my entry into the graduate program and it was like a it was it probably was one of the paintings, these two paintings here, Blue Pole and Sharks were what paintings that I submitted for the Fulbright that got oh, okay. me a Fulbright. So these two paintings were both like, very successful and within the context of the Art Institute, they were really, you know, um, people liked them. Yeah. Frank Frank Lobdell in particular liked Sharks. I okay. really loved that painting. And I huh. submitted both those paintings to the Fulbright Committee and got a Fulbright. Oh, that's I, great! This is when I when I got my master's.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna trade. This, to to
1: this was the, this other up. painting that's um, called "Traded for Drum Set."
0: So the your experiences at the Art Institute was kind of turned you in a uh, a different direction than where you would have gone if you'd have stayed at uh, Cooper Union. Well, a-
1: absolutely. Yeah, oh, absolutely. If I if i had gone to Yale, I probably, you know, it's funny, um, I'm saying that, and I'm thinking about Victor Moscoso.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Victor was a guy who went to Cooper Union. He, he graduated, I think, a year before me, maybe a year or two years before me. He's a little older than I am. And Victor got into Yale and went to Yale and studied all of that color theory with Albers people and all of those Bauhaus guys who came over and were hired by Albers to teach yeah. at Yale. And you see it in the posters that he did. Right. And and when I, when I came out here, one of the things I did, you know, I didn't really know a lot of people. I knew this guy, Jim Massey, but most of the people that I hung out with were the New York expats who came out to go to the art institute, and Victor Moscoso was one of them. Uh, uh, um, I'm trying to think of uh, Greg. I can't think of his name. Bob Giorgio was another guy. Um, Gregory, somebody. He 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 certainly he he was he was an interesting painter. Huh. But anyway, there were a bunch of us there were about five or six people who had come out from New York, and so we stuck together the first maybe the first six months or so that I was here. That was my little click yeah because we all had something in common and some of those people just you know hated the artists uh-huh. all wanted to go back to not all of them, but a few of them wanted to go back to um to New York you know they thought it was just you know too soft or whatever yeah. that. New York was the real deal. Right. And this was, you know, not. But I I kind of picked up that I felt that the painting had some real substance. Mm-hmm. It had something that was missing. The the whole New York thing I thought thought after a while, I you know, I had to sort of reject it in my mind. And I thought it's a lot of I don't know. I don't know what the words to use, but it's it's a lot of like concept Uh that it's like sort of it's not you know it's people are sort of saying this means this because I say so Mm -hmm. like this this kind of action painting really means something about my life or something psychological that it represents some kind of freedom some kind of thing but actually you know it's what you're left with is what's on the canvas right And I started to see that what was on what was in front of me when I looked at a painting by, say, Frank Lobdell or Elmer Bischoff or Julia Satovsky or Jack Jefferson or the guys or a piece of sculpture by Alvin Light or Manuel Neri. These were the people that, and there was really something more substantial Mm -hmm. that I could say, yeah, it's there. It's not, it's not bullshit. It's not them saying it's there and everybody going sort of it was like sort of New York started to look like the emperor's new clothes to me
3: Uh huh.
1: With the, with the exception of certain painters I still personally I still love Franz Klein yeah and I still love some of the Kooning stuff but I look at you know nowadays I look at like a Robert Motherwell painting and I don't it doesn't do much for me yeah I look at a, a Hans Hoffman painting Hans Hoffman's a pers- perfect example to me of someone who had all of these theories, this push pull, and that, and but when I look at a Hans Hoffman painting, it does absolutely nothing for me. Hmm. It Interesting. Carries, it doesn't carry the weight that he says it carries.
3: Uh-huh.
2: You know,
1: and sort of so. So I see that with a lot of the New York painters. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a few of the other ones too. Um, I I still I'm still kind of been up in the air about some some of. Alex Katz but Alex Uh Katz always impressed me he had something some kind of stylistic thing that was sort of you know um some kind of a a touch yeah it was very special right right that made his work kind of transcend the flatness and the sort of like um slickness I would say Uh
0: right yeah Absolutely. Yeah, so has I, I, your has your art and your music, have they both continued on just kind of parallel um, your whole life? Well,
1: I, I I didn't do I sort of really I really had to give it up. I really had to when I joined Big Brother in the holding company. Oh, this is what happened. Basically, I was um, I went on a Fulbright and I lived in Poland for a year. And I, that's a whole other story of why I chose Poland yeah but I did I chose Poland it was a possibility that one could go there and it was a communist country of course and it was very poor but there were a lot of things happening in the arts in Poland particularly in film and things like that and there's also a lot of things happening in painting and posters particularly right at that time so I was really attracted to art that was coming out of Poland I went there and lived for a year and during the time I was there I lost the studio that I had they had given me a studio at the Academy of Fine Art in Krakow and I lost it and I started to just hang out at this jazz club in Krakow and the same thing happened I sat in on drums one night and all of a sudden I was like in six bands
3: hmm. wow
1: traveling all over Poland playing with these jazz groups and making a lot of money
3: wow that's great
1: was, <laughs> the, the average like worker in in Krakow or or Warsaw at that time made a certain amount of money that was like the equivalent of somebody in San Francisco who might make $500 a week now. Wow. You know, very subsistence living. And I was making like four times that playing music and also receiving uh, a, a very large stipendium, what they call stipendium, from the Fulbright thing. So I, you know, but there was nothing to buy. And, um, I mostly spent it on just buying things for people and partying yeah. and paying for dinners and drinks for everybody all the time.
3: That's great. But anyways,
1: so I just started to play jazz again. I just couldn't paint. I didn't have a studio anymore. Um, the, the, the communist party that ran the art institute all of a sudden kind of moved me into this studio and they moved other people in and then there were five people and then there were 10 people and then there were 40 people and I couldn't paint anymore so I started to go to the jazz gum I started painting I started playing music again I really hadn't played much music except with the Studio 13 band and the whole time I was in the artist's youth from 1960 to 64 65 I only played at 40s and or just painted and suddenly I was playing just playing music again so I came back To the art institute fred martin asked me if i wanted a job teaching Mm -hmm. and i got hired and that was sort of standard practice at that time for a lot of people who had sort of gotten their masters and gotten the fulbright and were sort of you know i I wouldn't say i was a star i wasn't i wasn't a bit on the bill wiley level yeah or or, you know something like that but i was like my work was respected and, and and i was looked at as somebody who was going to make it who was going to have shows and i was on that track Uh huh. like i probably a lot of the guys who came out of the art institute at that time who came out of the magic the master's program the graduate program sort of wound up like teaching one year at the art institute then getting a job at some small college and eventually after like 15 or 20 years becoming the head of the department Mm -hmm. and then retiring in their late 60s or early 70s and having a nice retirement where they could just paint. And I was on that track. I was Mm -hmm. going on that track. And I was teaching at the Art Institute. I was teaching beginning and intermediate painting. And I also wasn't making enough money doing that because the, the classes just paid I think it was like thirty-five or forty dollars a class mm-hmm. that the teachers made. So unless you taught like five or six classes, it wasn't good enough. So I had these two classes, and I also was working at a a restaurant in North Beach called the Old Spaghetti Factory oh, yeah. as a cook mm-hmm. because I could. At bat, this time now, I had run the cafeteria. I'd worked in the cafeteria for like two or three years, and and and. Uh, instead of food being brought in by Trader Vic's leftovers yeah. from Trader Vic's we actually started cooking meals and we would serve we would serve lunches the lunches were 65 cents wow we would, we would make stews and spaghetti and meatballs and yeah. all of this
2: stuff like that That's and awesome. so that
1: was another thing that I did and I became a cook and I got could work in restaurants so I was working in this spaghetti factory as a second cook There and I was teaching two classes at the Audit Institute. And I found myself a studio, a loft on 18th and Bryant. And I was living sometimes, I had an apartment in North Beach up on Kearney, but sometimes I would live at the loft on 18th and Bryant. And that was pretty much it. And then one day at the loft on 18th and Bryant, I went down to have lunch and I saw this guy with long hair eating lunch and we started a conversation i think I, I really asked him how he why he had hair down to his shoulders that like really sort of, mm-hmm. you know, how you get away with that because it, it was like he i knew he was working in one of the places in the neighborhood and it was mostly a kind of working class area It was sort of the industrial part of the mission right and this guy was peter albin who was the bass player in the band called big brother and the holy company and he told me he played bass in this band big brother and I said, oh, wow, I, you know, I'd seen a poster up at the Art Institute for one of your shows, and it, was, it really knocked me out because there was a poster that said Big Brother and the Holy Company, and it showed a, a picture of a yogi sitting on a bed of nails. Oh, yeah. And I thought, wow, you know, what does that have to do with music? It's sort of you have to make this jump in your mind. And this was, you know, this was also the beginning of the whole psychedelic period. Right. and things like that were sort of happening but the the other thing that happened was when he told me that big brother and the holy company i had said i had heard of the band but i hadn't heard the band but i was going to because there was an event that was being put on that i was actually involved in called the peace rock Uh huh. and it was people from the art institute that were helping that sort of organize this this dance concert and one of the bands that was hired was big brother and holding company so I said well I'm going to go to that show I'm going to hear your band so I went to that show it was early February of 1966 and um I heard them and I thought they were really great and this is before Janis Joplin
3: yeah
1: just four guys yeah and um
3: there it is yeah
1: that's that's the uh, original big brother poster that's awesome so um there were four guys and and they were just kind of something really great about them it was really like almost very far out contemporary music with a rock and roll beat but I uh-huh. didn't think the drummer was good the drummer was weak and I when I saw Peter the next time at my studio I said you know if you ever get rid of that drummer give me a call I'd like to be in I play drums in your band Awesome. At this time, I'm thinking to myself, I could be in this rock band and I'd still be teaching at the Art Institute and still painting. And I could do that. Right. And there was another band that had already started up at the Art Institute called the Mystery Trend, uh-huh. which was um, started by um, a couple of people at the Art Institute. Ron Nagel,
3: uh, yeah.
1: a ceramic teacher, so a young ceramics guy who was who was having a lot of success already in his career. And Ron played keyboards and wrote songs, and there was a drummer, a guy named John Luby, who was a student at the university. I think he might have been a photography student. I'm not sure. But they had already started a, a rock band, and they had played at some of the Earth, you know, first psychedelic dances.
3: Uh huh.
1: So I, I, I kind of wanted to get into that whole scene. I wanted to be in a band at some point. Um, at my studio on in the in the mission at 18th and Bryant, we tried to start a band. Uh, Victor Moscoso came and his brother, he had a brother named Jimmy Moscoso who played bass. A sculptor named Calvin Grung played okay. guitar. And um I forget who else was in it. Another there was another guy whose name I can't remember now, who was at the school, who came and we all got together at my studio and we played and it it was okay. It was just it just didn't happen. It just didn't yeah. come together. Right. But then, sometime a few weeks after this uh, peace rock, Peter Peter called me up, and said, you know, we don't have a drummer for tonight. We're playing at this club, the Matrix. Oh
2: which okay. Which was down
1: in which was down in um um was well, down in, in Cow Hall, Yeah. Actually, is where it is. It was on Fillmore and. Um, more near, near, near Lumber, and it was a little alleyway. Anyway, so they said, but you have to rehearse with there. This was the Peace Rock and uh, yeah, February 12th. So so I get I got together. I rehearsed with them and then we played at the Matrix that night and I was in the, that band. Then I was the drummer in that band and I still thought that I could continue painting. I still had my studio. I was still teaching. And um, we would rehearse um, almost every day. I would, I would, I was just, you know, I don't know how I did it. when I think about it now, mm-hmm. but when, you know, when you're 26, you have a certain kind of energy that just goes,
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> so I would, you know, I'd be at school, well, only twice a week. I'd be teaching two classes, but I'd work like maybe three or four days a week at the spaghetti factory, which was like four o'clock in the afternoon. Usually so 11, 30, 12 mm-hmm. o'clock at night. And some the afternoons that I wasn't doing that, I'd be rehearsing with Big Brother and the Holy Company at a firehouse on Henry Street in, um, in the Castro. Hmm. And doing all of that. And um, we'd be playing, we had gigs, we played a place called The Firehouse and we played The Matrix as a quartet. It was just um, uh, two guitars. Bass and drums. Yeah. And at some point, Peter, who was kind of the organizer and leader of the band, who had formed the band, he and the other guys decided that he wasn't a good enough singer and we should try to become more like the Jefferson Airplane. Uh-huh. And we should get a female singer. Yeah. And so we started to audition female singers and we auditioned a few. We auditioned a gal, Lynn, Lynn Hughes, who was a very good folk singer. We auditioned a gal named Lisa Kindred, who passed away this past year, who was also a folk singer uh, playing around North Beach at the time. And then our manager, who was a guy from Texas named Chet Helms, he said, well, I know this gal who's in Texas and she's really good. And uh, we were good friends. I guess they hung out together in Austin at some point. Mm and he said but she she had a lot of problems she came to San Francisco and she got strung out on speed and then she went back to Texas to go back to school and i don't know if she you know she'd come maybe i'm going to i'll try and get her to come and maybe she'll sing with the band she'll be the singer yeah so anyway he that he he did that and she came and it was the same kind of thing instantaneously she was the singer in the band there was no question about it right she was she was what we were what we were looking for that's yeah. great and she wasn't you know in the beginning she definitely wasn't what people think of her now as what she sort of wound up as mm-hmm. singing rhythm and blues and singing you know kind of um, a lot of like more soulful stuff she was a folk singer she was a folk blue singer and her orientation in music was Bessie Smith and Odetta and a lot of folk blues right and that's what she did and and she had um a certain kind of style and as we you know practiced with her she started to kind of scream more she started to sort of adapt to a certain uh, volume that Mm -hmm. energy that we played at and she started to listen to other people she started to listen to more Chicago blues people like howlin' Wolf,
3: yeah
1: and muddy waters and then ultimately, um, she found people like Otis Redding and Etta James. and But she wasn't aware of that kind of stuff when she first came with the band. She mm-hmm. was more like a, a folk singer, a folk blues singer. Right. She had, but she had the power. She had a, a strong voice. And it was the only one who had tried out with us to have a voice like that. Anyway, the moment of truth came for me sort of at that point. This was June, and school was already kind of I don't know if there's classes were still happening. I think classes were over. But at some point, Fred Martin came to my studio, and it was kind of the decision as to whether he was going to rehire me to teach. And already at that point, I think a lot of people knew that I was in this band that I was playing and performing with them over you know around the city Mm -hmm. and the man was already getting a reputation I don't know how much Fred knew but Fred but Fred knew what he knew what my painting was and he knew that my painting in some way was like very influenced by the 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 teachers that i would had yeah people who were the older guys when I say the older guys let's say if I was 26 Frank Labdell was probably 43 or 43. Mm-hmm. So was Jerry Hatowski and Jack Jefferson. And those were the guys. And Dieben Korn was in his, still his 40s. Um, and so that was, you could see that in my work. M- my work, I wasn't co- I wasn't copying those guys. Yeah. I was doing something that was my own interpretation of what that painting, that style of painting was about. My own idea of it, but but fred asked me this question he was looking at my work we were sitting there looking at this painting and he said would you be doing this painting if you were on the moon hmm. and it was kind of an odd question to ask at the time but i thought about it you know mm-hmm. i thought about it and i understood something right then and there that he was saying in some way that the the painting had a lot of meaning Within a certain context. Mm-hmm. If you took it out of the context, if I was out of the context of the art institute, if I wasn't teaching at the art institute, if I wasn't going out and drinking with Jack Jefferson and Frank labdell right, and you know being part of that scene, would I be doing this painting? And that, and the answer was no.
3: Yeah,
1: right. The answer was no, and the answer at the same time was if i was on the moon and i had a set of drums would i be playing the drums and the answer was yes right at that time in my life that was the truth i was loving playing the drums i was having a ball being in this band and at the same time i was when i'd go and paint it was like i was struggling i was trying to find something i was trying Mm -hmm. to, to look for something i was trying to in some way break loose but not break loose i didn't really you know i it was like it's it's a moment of truth i think for any painter when you get out of art school what do you do now what do
3: you do yeah you know right.
1: when no one cares about what you're doing but you and you know and you can't find galleries and no one's buying or stuff what do you do how do you sustain it <laughs> and um, i didn't i couldn't but at the same time i had something else that was really fun mm-hmm. and really at the same time it was fun people were really like attributing a lot of meaning to it right it was revolutionary that it was part of a whole cultural change yeah so i felt that i was really in some way part of something that was going to change the world mhm so
3: that's um, great
1: that that was i think the moment of truth for me and then the real moment of truth came when when Janice was now part of the band, and we were in July of um of nineteen sixty-six, and two things happened. One was everybody said, We gotta live together. We have to all live together so we can play all the time mm-hmm. every day, so we can get to this level of the Jefferson airplane and be the you know, one of the stay. As one of the top bands. Right. The other thing that happened was we got an offer to go to Chicago and play in a club for a month, which was going to happen in August of of that year. So, so there were two things that I had to commit to. I had to one, if I was going to stay in this band, I had to give up my studio and my apartment in North Beach, which was a fabulous apartment and a fabulous studio, mm-hmm. and move in with this group of people who I who I liked and the music and I loved the music and at the same time get ready to pack everything up and go to Chicago for a month and not not know where we were going to stay or you know what we were going to do there except that we had a gig in a club and we wow. we're going to play five nights a week yeah in this club like three or four sets a night wow so that was what and those two things happened so I and, and I did I gave up my apartment I gave up my studio um, and I moved into this house in Lagunitas with um, four other people and two of whom were married, Uh-huh. And two of whom had children. So there were two little toddler children and then Sam had a girlfriend and the only two people who were single were Janice and myself. Wow. So there were a lot of people and we suddenly were living together and playing music every day but also you know fighting about who's going to clean up the place right all of that who's gonna who's gonna shop for food right all of the things that you have have when you have people living together
3: oh man
1: which we did you know and didn't anticipate yeah and drugs and and who you know who's who was doing you know people there was the i i didn't at that time but there were some of the people in the band using crystal meth sure and that was like really Mm. colored everything Mm -hmm. when you start to live with people who are staying up all night shooting methadrine in their Mm. arms it's like wow all of a sudden that's you know can can you do this right Can you stay and live with these people
0: yeah right right
1: can you you have to join them or or get out of there and get up
0: well and i i was thinking one of the one of the things i was interested in in asking you about uh you've obviously seen a lot of stuff and a lot of people who haven't uh made it you know and uh you're you're still on the earth and you're still playing music and and making art and is there anything that you sort of would attribute that to just keeping yourself creative and uh you know, not falling into some of the pitfalls, I guess. Yeah.
1: Well, it takes it takes work. It takes you have to keep a focus on on it. And um, even though I really didn't do much visual art, I, I, you know, every once in a while I would stay up and draw something or create something. I At, at a certain point, um, you know, while I'd be on the road or playing rock and roll. I, I would do something. But really, I really didn't do much art. Mm -hmm. Almost thirteen years. Wow! Yeah. And uh, I played music, and I really, at some point after, at as 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 the sixties were ending, and it all was crashing down, and janice died, and the band broke up, and right, and all of that was you know Altamont, everything was falling apart. At some point, I realized that I had now, I was a musician, I was a professional musician. And if I were going to, I was a. Can, 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 if I were going to continue as a professional musician and not be just in this one band, mm-hmm. I would have to get better. I would have to again go back to where I didn't go when I was 16 and 17 and get to another level
3: mm-hmm.
1: as, as a musician. Right. So I had to focus on that, and I did that, and I started to play with a lot of other bands and travel with other bands and and make it basically as a as a rock musician right in, in the scene with with several other bands and artists mm-hmm. but um but that all came to um uh close at the end of the 70s uh-huh and uh, and mm-hmm. I found myself living in LA I was living in LA and I didn't know what I was going to do I was sort of like um you know at a crossroads in my life I had um I had actually gotten uh, starting to get sober. I wanted to stop using drugs and stop drinking and stop living a certain lifestyle, mm-hmm. which I had really gotten into in the 70s, early 70s, and and drugs and rock and roll and the whole thing like that. And I wanted to get back to art, and I didn't know even where to start. And the, the funny thing about it was that my sister, I had a younger sister who's a... Uh, um, a fabric artist. Basically, she was doing she was doing a lot of batiking mm-hmm. at that time. But um, she's a photographer now and a printmaker. But she she was a uh, she was teaching art in high school, and uh, she's a good artist. And she was doing batiking. So I thought, well, I'll try doing batik. Hmm. And I went and I rented this studio in L.A. in Santa Monica. I found a studio, a little small space that I could rent. And that was that was just an empty space. It had nothing. It had a bathroom downstairs below it and some water. But I thought I'll I'll just rent this space and try to do batik. And I went and bought all of this wax and batiking, you know, pens and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I did a few pieces and you know, it just it didn't do anything for me. And then I thought, Well, what else can I try? And I signed up for a class. I I looked at um, a catalogue of uh, adult education at that time, I was you know, outside UCLA, and it was a screen printing class that was given at a, 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 an artist studio in Santa Monica. It's a woman named Evelyn Johnson who was a screen printer, and I thought, well, you know, I'd like to learn how to screen print because I knew a little bit about screen printing because at some point in the early '70s, I'd uh, invested in a company that was printing all of the t-shirts mm-hmm. so print all the t-shirts for the Grateful Dead yeah and uh, I was very close to t- two of the artists that were doing the posters at the time yeah close friends of mine uh, Stanley Mouse and Alton Kelly-huh and they had started this company and they had come to me and say you know would you invest in it and I did so I I had hung out there a lot and I'd watched screen printing t- of t-shirts and I knew what the process was but i also knew that there was an art process that people called serigraphy a uh-huh. uh, funny word yeah and uh, i thought well you know maybe i could do art with screen printing and i signed up for this class and i started going to this class in the uh, santa monica canyon with this woman evelyn johnson and right off the bat it was like it was like magic for me it's like i i had a feel for it i just thought I just, just, you know, I just really liked when that ink hit the paper, the Mm -hmm. white paper, and, you know, the effect of seeing that color, and this cleanliness of the shapes, it just did something for me, it just awakened, awakened my painter instincts, Uh again, really, uh, like a rebirth for me, of those, the things that made me want to paint, and made me want to be an artist, it just, uh, you know, really woke them up again so that's what I did I just started and I I the studio I got and said I instead of doing batik I just cleared it out and I bought a, a drying rack and I uh-huh. and I created a, a a place where I could do screen printing myself
3: that's great and that's,
1: and that's what I did for the next seven years uh-huh awesome. I was a screen printer and I got involved in screen printing in LA and I joined The los angeles printmaking society and i was part of the um uh, uh, there's another one in san francisco uh, as a member of that i became the exhibition chairman of the los angeles printmaking society and i showed in galleries and i had different art reps and i you know i was i was that's what i did
3: that's great
1: and again it's sort of like the opposite happened i didn't really play the drums for much for like seven years. Yeah. I got I got sober. I stopped using all drugs and alcohol. I became very involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh Uh-huh. I I worked literally like I went like a job. I would go to my studio. I lived in um I lived in sort of like um the La Brea area. It's not really Hollywood. It's Mm -hmm. south of Hollywood the the Park La Brea area and um, and I had an apartment there with my wife I got married uh, at that point also but um I would go like to my studio just like a job almost like every day yeah and I would cut stencils I got very like focused cutting stencils then I became very very technically adept at the technique of serigraphy or hand screen printing yeah small <laughs> editions and I became like very adept at uh, what they call split fountains of mixing colors on the screen and being able to manipulate colors huh. on the screen and cut very exact stencils and I would use lacquer stencils but a lot of paper stencils hmm. sometimes at, a, at a, a light table and sometimes I would do photo stencils with emulsion but I became very adept at the technique that technique and um and like I say I probably, I I wasn't making a living from it. I wasn't making enough mm-hmm. to make a living, but I was involved in several galleries. I had stuff at the uh, a lot of stuff at the L.A. County Museum rental gallery, and stuff was going out, and people were buying my work, and I was selling to corporate collections, hmm. and all of that, and I was making maybe, I don't know, fifteen twenty thousand dollars a year yeah. selling prints and prints. And at that time, uh, art dealers would sell my print and they'd sell it for like maybe $300 or $250 for print. I'd get $125. Yeah. And I'd have to sell a lot of prints. Sure. Money. Right. And, and, and one year, I think I made twelve or $13,000. So I sold a lot of prints, but it wasn't enough. So I had to go out and get another job. And the job that I got at some point, I worked in construction. Uh-huh. I did some construction work. I was, you know, I was in my 40s then, early 40s. then. And eventually I got a job in a kitchen again. And I worked in a restaurant in LA called City Restaurant. And I worked for two women who were like master chefs who became famous chefs, Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger hmm. in this restaurant. And I got into that. I got into sort of like really learning, again, yeah. learning how to cook on another level awesome Moving my level up in that way too yeah. so so everything you, your answer to your question is how do you keep it going you have to keep it going by you have to continually have challenges mm-hmm. you have to try to raise your level all the yep. time that's you can great. never think i'm good enough now and i don't even think i'm good enough as a drummer now i'm, uh-huh. always, I'm like i just turned to 83 and i'm practicing and I'm, I'm i think i'm getting better
2: that's great i'm
1: actually the and and it's the same thing with art. I'm I'm never, I never like want to kind of repeat myself. I'm trying now, much more. My art has really changed so much over the last few years. I'm really focused much more now on content, which uh-huh. I never thought. I've got I've gone completely from really this great belief in abstract art to sort of like really wanting now to sort of say something very. Um, not necessarily like social, yeah, or political, but something that has that says something that has meaning to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's like great. Life and death, you know, yeah, stuff like that. I want that to be in my work,
0: right? Well, and you've lived long enough to have those experiences that you would want to, you know, have yeah. that kind of substance in your artwork. You know, yeah.
1: I, I, but think. I think that that is a really a key. to 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 staying young or staying alive Mm -hmm. in in any art
2: sure
0: it's
1: never like kind of settling and saying okay I'm just going to do this now Mm -hmm. to continually trying to absorb new things and try new things right and and keep growing you know yeah
0: absolutely that's awesome yeah I think that's super important and uh whether you're 40 or or 80 or whatever. 80. It's just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh that's that's great. Yeah. So I just wanted to um talk a little bit about your experience. Like uh you guys played Monterey and 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 Woodstock, is that correct?
1: Didn't play Woodstock. Didn't play My Woodstock. Big Brother didn't play Woodstock. Okay. Diana Stomplin played Woodstock after okay. she left Big Brother. I see but we played Monterey of course Monterey. And that's you know fairly well documented
0: yeah right and and what about um Altamont did you go there or play there or no, not, no no
1: I was I think I was still living in LA okay when I, I was... Altamont, no well actually I wasn't living in LA I was living here I was living here but I didn't go to Altamont yeah I missed that and thank God I missed it right you know, I just,
0: <laughs> yeah oh man interesting well this has been this has been a great conversation I I appreciate the the uh, sort of the scope and um you know how things kind of followed in your life you know you just go from you
1: one know, one, place. Are, one of the other things just we just didn't get really into it but one of the important things that I thought because this is a some related to the history of the art Institute yeah and how important that was. One of the things that was so interesting for me in, in the years that I was at the Art Institute was this band called uh-huh. the Studio 13 Band. Yeah. And the band was started by Elmer Bischoff and David Park. And uh, uh, David Park played the piano, and he was a pre- fairly pretty good jazz piano player. And um, if you know a little about San Francisco history, mm-hmm. there was this thing that happened in San Francisco in the 50s 40s and 50s, that was called the San Francisco Revival. And it was like a a jazz movement sort of back to the roots. Mm -hmm. A lot of um, musicians, um, mostly white musicians, but not all white musicians, came to San Francisco from New Orleans and places like that and settled here and started to do that music. So San Francisco was like a kind of an epicenter of traditional jazz outside of like New Orleans and maybe Chicago. Not so much, it was in New York and it was in other places, but San Francisco was really a hub of this thing called the San Francisco Revival. And these guys like David Park and Elma Bishop, they came up in that thing. So they loved traditional jazz, that New Orleans jazz. And that's why they wanted to start this band And um and they did. Yeah. And and so the people that were in that band over the years, it's just really interesting. Wally Hedrick was really a person that uh he was very he really sort of in some way he managed the band. Mm -hmm. And he gave me this name at one point. He named me Baby Dave.
0: Baby Dave, right.
1: Baby Dave. and the baby there was a reference to a drummer named Baby Dodds, who was the original drummer with Louis Armstrong's Hot Five.
3: Okay, awesome. And also
1: with King Oliver. Yeah. Baby Dodds and his baby brother, Dodds. Johnny Dodds, was a clarinet player. Yeah. And they came out of New Orleans. And Baby Dodds actually, at some point, I think, was in San Francisco. Huh. But anyway, um, while all of that was happening, these guys were, you know, also creating a whole art movement, mm-hmm. which is really, you know, incredible when you think about it. Yeah, David Park and Elmer Bischoff and the Richard Diebenkorn. Uh Richard Devincourt, I don't think played any music. I'm not sure. I never, you know, heard anything. Yeah. But Elmer right. was very good. Elmer Bischoff was a very good trumpet player. Mm-hmm. And that and that band had a real life during a certain period of time. And I'd say probably before I got there, probably the very late 50s and in the early 60s at every party, every San Francisco-oriented party, and there were a lot of parties then, the Studio 13 band played. So it was like being in that band was for me like a ticket to, um, well, to get to mostly to really get to very close to Wally Hedrick and Jay DeFeo, who became, you know, like, almost like almost like a, a mom and dad for me at a time right a
0: time. that's yeah. awesome
1: but but elmer too but it was a very it was a really like a kind of a great thing mm-hmm. and actually you know when elmer died he was replaced by a guy named robin hodes who hmm. was um part of that again that new that uh, that san francisco revival, revival music came right of it and he came into the studio thirteen band, but he wasn't an artist. But um the huh. guy who played clarinet was a San Francisco alumni named Charlie Clark, huh. who had an who started an advertising agency, and was like an art and advertising agency downtown. And awesome. another guy, John Sagan, was the trombone player. And he had gone to the art institute, but he didn't continue with art. He became yeah. something else. Right. But it was all came out of the school it all came out of a certain kind of mentality that was very much part of the school and um for me it was just a just a great great thing yeah and i uh, even over the years some of us have tried to keep it going but Mm. you know well when wally died i think that was really uh, a, a closing moment
2: uh-huh
1: elmer was gone charlie clark died john sagan died and then wally died yeah and the thing we tried to carry on richard shaw and uh, mike dixon willow dixon uh-huh and myself tried to carry it on through a few things and we played at a graduation thing on treasure island and we played at um the roses um event
3: oh uh, yeah
1: one one time and we tried you know continuing to do it with the audience. But somewhere probably around seven, eight, nine years ago, around maybe 2010 might have been the last yeah. time it ever really happened.
3: Oh, man. And it's
1: really sad, It's but it's a piece of history.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know,
1: I it, that I really still i am very proud that <laughs> I was part of that.
3: That's awesome.
1: But, you know, anyway, just want to give that a plug. Yeah. Guess, you know, well, it's really much, very much a part of my story with the art institute yeah is very much connected to music and uh yeah and, and um, that's that, great I'm well i 13.
0: i appreciate that you know and yeah, I, I i i uh, um i'm you know i'm grateful that i got to see wally and richard perform one time in 1983 at uh indian valley college and Mm -hmm. I didn't really know then that uh the history of the Studio 13 band I just knew them as guys musicians you know and so uh it's it's great it's great
1: Jeff Gunderson I sent Jeff I was going through stuff one day last year and I came across a BHS tape that had been made at a party out in um out in Sonoma, out in Bodega, I think it was a bo- Bodega where Wally Wally Hedrick was living. Yeah. it was it was a really really good take, really good recording, video recording awesome. of the band with Wally, myself, John Sagan, Charlie Clark, and oh, Robin wow. Hodes, and probably maybe the last record. And, and Jeff has the has the VHS, and he said he's going to make me a CD for the Oh, and that'd he be still has it, and he still hasn't made me the CD. Oh man! But, uh, but I, I'm i glad that Jeff has it.
0: Yeah, it it's it's in good. In
1: the archives. Yeah.
0: Right. Oh man, yeah. that's great. Well, this has been this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it, and um I think yeah, if there's if there's anything else you wanted to say, no, man,
1: uh, it's, it's covered a lot.
0: This has been great, and. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, it adds a lot to the, you know, continuing and perpetuating the legacy of the Art Institute to have these kinds of recordings. And uh, I'm really happy to have had this conversation with you. And uh, I think it's
1: great that you're doing
0: this. Oh, thanks.
1: That's, that's really, thanks. Uh, yeah. Contribution.
0: You've been listening to Speaking of Art School an oral history project created to perpetuate the culture and legacy of the San Francisco Art Institute. I'm your host, Thomas M. Houston. If you're an alumni of SFAI and would like to participate in this project, please contact me at thomasmhoustonartist at gmail.com. Please stay tuned for upcoming episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.